welcome to the Sports Medcast, brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We are your hosts, Drs. Scott Young and Cole Taylor, and this month we're going to change it up a little bit. Instead of bringing a subject matter expert on with us, we're actually going to become the subject matter experts. Well, not really, but uh, we're going to see if we can pull some clinically juicy pearls out of the recent sports literature and hopefully give you guys something that you can learn from. So what do you think? Well, what's going on? Uh, it sounds good. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm also excited because you may be able to tell that my uh, audio support is improved this time around. We have been able to expand the budget here at the Sports Medcast. And, uh, well, hold on. I I forgot. I need to make sure. So uh, this episode's also brought to you by uh, Mike's Tuxedos. If Mike <laughs> can't make you look good, nobody can. So um, with that out of the way, I'm excited that I've been able to expand my own uh, audio quality here, and I'm ready to do some, uh, you know, some journal review, some review of the sports medicine literature, and bring forth some clinical pearls to our listeners. That's awesome. It sounds like your uh, phone's ringing in the background there, too. So <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the, uh, the we need to up the budget a little bit and see if we can <laughs> find <Yeah>. some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully at some point we'll be able to get a proper recording studio for That's this right. episode. So maybe at some point. All right. Well, let's get started here. What we're doing is basically an informal journal club. Uh, there's lots of great stuff out there, lots of great journals with tons of great articles. How do you pick any one of them? In general, we're hoping to avoid hate mail and death threats, and so we're not going to be addressing anything that's too controversial. Well, at least I'm not. You never can tell with Cole. So, <laughs> Cole, what did you come up with? What are we going to be t- talking about here? Oh, you throw me that, that slow-pitch softball. I'm not going to hit it because my first uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is not very controversial at all. This was just simply a review article talking about the evaluation and management of hamstring injuries. This was published in May in the American Journal of Sports Medicine by Dr. Christopher Ahmad and his colleagues from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Columbia University in New York. And so I thought, well, I can sit here and ramble on about hamstrings for the next five to seven minutes or so. Or Scott, instead, I could just have you tell me what you want to know about hamstring injuries and I'll sound really smart. Oh, that, that figures. You just throw it right back at me. Hey, Scott, why don't you do the work and I'll just sit back and sip a Mai Tai and, and just uh, throw some answers out there. Sounds great. Well, well, in that case, let's start with the intro starting from the beginning of the paper, really what caught your eye, what was kind of interesting in the way they started the thing off. Well, you know, you got that first couple of paragraphs and it's, let's give you a couple interesting statistics. And so they talked about hamstring injuries being 29% of all injuries in athletes. I loved the injury statistic of 31% or up to 31% of a re-injury risk of those that already have hamstring injuries. So I thought that was pretty significant and it made sense to me being a big sports fan, you know, whenever your favorite athlete gets that injury, gets that hamstring pull or strain, it's like a death wish. You just see that and you, oh no, now he's going to be dealing with hamstring issues for a while. So that all of a sudden made a lot of sense to me. And then of course, sprinters, uh, you know, those are guys doing those heavy eccentric loads on that hamstring. 50% of their muscle injuries are in the hamstring. Interesting. So we know that prior injury is going to contribute to the potential for future injury. And inadequate warm-up can be a problem, too. What are some other risk factors that you saw in the article? Yeah, so those are two good ones that you pointed out there. If there's some strength imbalances between uh, each of the legs, uh, fatigue is a big one. Guys that are, um, you know, I, I think of the guy that's running down the field on that long interception return in an American football game, and he's gone 80 yards, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden he pulls up lame at the very end. And that has to do with that fatigability of the muscles. Dehydration can be a component as well. And, and you mentioned the history of injury, but that's obviously the most significant risk factor. 
Sure, absolutely. So, you know, we hear patients come into the clinic, they feel that sudden, acute, sharp pain in the back of their leg. Maybe they feel a pop. Let's move on to the exam. You know, what are the things that we're looking for here? What are the really high-yield exam findings? So some of them are basic. They're, they're what we think about. Uh, you do your inspection. You might see some ecchymoses depending on the extent of the injury. They may have an unusual gait. It's often a, a stiff-legged gait. They're trying not to fully stretch that hamstring. Uh, and then you're going to go on to your palpation. You're going to try to palpate for localization, but this can be difficult. And as you get into kind of your range of motion and special testing, uh, this was where I, I kind of I, I enjoyed it. It sort of made me chuckle a little bit, but it, it's nothing different than a typical hamstring stretch. Now, of course, as is the case with many of our sports medicine exams, these have some names to them. You know, some some famous doctor who invented this had to, had to give it his name. But if you can't remember the names, just simply think about hamstring stretches. So one of those stretches is taking the leg and putting it up on a table or your foot up on a table while you're standing and then just stretching the hamstring like you would, might stretch before a race. Uh, another is, you know, we do this test to measure the popliteal angle, but you have the patient lie back supine, and then they'll have their uh, hip flexed to 90 degrees, and then you see what kind of angle you can get by extending at the knee, and that's one of the tests. And then you might flex the hip just a little bit beyond 90 and then try to straighten up the leg, and that's a test. And eliciting pain or causing them a lot of discomfort is essentially a positive test in, in uh, when you're performing these. And so it's nothing special. It's not anything crazy, but uh, they have pretty good yields in terms of their sensitivity and specificity. Interesting. What's that one called where you stick your uh, ankles behind your head? What, what do you call that <laughs> test? That's the, that's the test that you probably performed in your previous life as a trapeze artist or something All like right, that. So, right. um, yeah, that, that was not included in the review article. I'm not sure. I know I can't perform that test, so I, I don't expect uh, many of my patients to perform that one. Bummer. We'll keep practicing. You'll get there. I promise. <laughs> Thanks. So, but in, uh, being serious again, you know, I certainly use ultrasound in my practice a fair amount. And with these injuries, I'm trying to determine the location and extend. Is it the tendon? Is it the muscle? Is it the myotendinous junction, which is probably the most common place? You know, what do you find the utility of ultrasound and other imaging in these patients? So that's a great question, Scott, and I use ultrasound as well. And, and you basically just described the utility of ultrasound, so you're looking for the extent of the injury and the location. But MRI can also be useful. You can figure out the injury location, the degree of damage, the number of tendons involved, whether there's retraction or not, chronicity. So I guess the question to us and the clinically relevant question becomes, when do you order the MRI? And, and you can kind of break up these injuries into a couple of different groups. You've got non-insertional or these kind of mid-substance or muscle issues, and a lot of the times we do not treat those surgically. We treat those conservatively. So th in those cases, you might not need to order an MRI. You're going to go through your typical treatment plan that, that you would normally follow with hamstring strains and injuries. Now, if you're worried about an insertional injury, so you, whether it be proximal near the ischial tuberosity or more distal, you probably ought to have greater consideration for getting an MRI because a lot of those results that will come from the MRI, the degree of retraction, the number of tendons involved, that's going to directly influence whether you send this person to surgery or whether you manage them non-operatively. That's interesting, Cole, and that's great information. I mean, I know the next time I'm in the clinic and I see a hamstring strain, I know that you know if it's something mid-muscle, and then I'm going to move towards standard conservative management, et cetera. But if it's insertional, I know that I probably should be looking at getting some imaging because there could be other uh, management options like surgery, et cetera. So great, great point. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And that, so, and that brings us to the last section, I guess. And I'll just kind of sum it up real quick. I don't want to go on too long, but 
in terms of treatment, you just mentioned some of that stuff. So those, these mid-substance, these non-insertional injuries, activity modification, eye stretching, early physical therapy, maybe some anti-inflammatories, some gradual return to play. But what else can you use? There's some interesting research where they're talking about uh, maybe the potentials of PRP. One NFL physician had actually uh, given PRP injections to his athletes within 24 to 48 hours of the injury. And he saw uh, return to play a whole week earlier than what he would see with his typical treatment plan. And then even more important than that, he saw a 0% recurrence rate where generally he was seeing two to four recurrences over the course of a year. So interesting, but not enough at this point in time, no level one studies. And the, uh, the authors of this article say there's not enough evidence at this point to really recommend or discourage the adoption of PRP, but something to think about for the future. So it's interesting because you, you figure that an, an acute tear is going to have like almost PRP already there, technically whole blood, right? But, you know, it's, it's, uh, that, that is interesting and that, that, that did have an effect. We're going to so, concentrate those growth factors, Scott. We're going to concentrate them. So, yes, indeed. Yes, uh, indeed. With, with the insertional injuries, um, if you've got one tendon involved and or you've got two and, and almost no retraction, you can consider the non-operative treatment for those proximal injuries. If you've got three tendons involved or you've got two centimeters of retraction, you better get them to the surgeon. These tend to be managed uh, more effectively when they get to surgery within four weeks. And for the distal insertional injuries, we've mostly treated those conservatively, but there's some evidence that suggests that maybe we could cut that return to play time down by half if we do surgery. So if you've got elite athletes and recovery time is important, you might want to consider uh, surgical intervention in those as well. That's interesting. Some really good uh, points. So walking away from this article, if you had a couple, three things that you really got out of it, what would you, what would you, what would you say? Oh, three things are so tough. I would say I really liked the special testing, just doing some basic hamstring stretches. Uh, I loved the utilization of MRI to help me determine when I need to send somebody to surgery or not for those insertional uh, type injuries. And, you know, it's always interesting to read about maybe the potential of the future of these type of injuries. I, I get interested whenever I'm reading about PRP and we'll have to see whether that all pans out or not. So that's my article, Scott, and I'm just going to hand it over to you, I guess, and you're going to enlighten us with what you've read about. Yeah, thanks, Cole. That was great. I definitely got some good pearls out of that article. Thanks for doing that. So the article I'm going to be talking about also came from the American Journal of Sports Medicine, was published around the same time as yours, I believe. But this one was looking at degenerative joint disease of the acromioclavicular joint. Really good review of AC arthropathy from Dr. Nathan Mall, Dr. Emily Foley, and their colleagues from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, and St. Louis Center for Cartilage Restoration and Repair in St. Louis, Missouri. So this is a really nice article. kind of starts off with a little bit of a review of anatomy, talks about the multiple ossification centers in the acromion and the clavicle. And the reason that's relevant clinically is because there's something out there called an os acromial, which happens in about 8% of the population. And what it is is an unfused ossification center in the acromion. And it occurs most commonly at the base uh, where the base and the mid-acromion meet or the meta and mesoacromion where those two come together. And the reason this is clinically important, of course, is because if you're getting a plain film, you might see this space on there and confuse it for a fracture, especially in the uh, circumstances of trauma. The other thing about the osteochromial that's interesting is it can be symptomatic on its own, so it can actually, like any other unfused ossification center, can get aggravated, have inflammation, and other issues that can cause it to be painful. So it's something you want to keep in mind when you're evaluating these uh, these AC injuries or AC degenerative joint disease. So we all know there's a fibrocartilaginous disc in between the acromion and the clavicle, and it really starts to break down around the second decade of life. 
And once you get over 50, most people have had a pretty significant degeneration of that disc, which contributes, of course, to degenerative joint disease. So the pathology or pathophysiology in these AC arthropathies, you know, trauma is a big one. We definitely all see this in our sports practices and beyond. And axial load is really the most common type of trauma. And we see this in a lot of great sports all around the world, rugby, you know, football, really anything where people are getting hit from the side or falling on their side or falling on their side and having somebody fall on top of them. Or in the case of rugby, fall on your side, somebody falls on you, and then about 15 other people fall on them. So, you know, there's certainly a lot of axial load going on there, but certainly inflammatory arthropathy and, um, sorry, inflammatory arthropathy can contribute as well as instability. So when you have an unstable AC joint, you get a lot of contract tax stressors out of that. Uh, interesting. I, I was thinking about wrestling around with my boys in the in like the living room as a risk factor for AC joint. A lot of people <laughs> falling on top of me there. So lots of stuff here. So tell me about the the physical exam. So what what sensitivity specificity? What's our high yield stuff there? Yeah, good question. So of course we're starting this exam by examining the entire shoulder. You know the scapula is really hot right now in sports medicine. There was a, some great articles that came out recently in the British Journal of Sports Medicine looking at the the scapula dyskinesia. But that's an important part of this exam as well, looking at the scapula for dyskinesia. But when you're looking at just straight up palpation, it turns out that it's somewhat sensitive, but really not that specific, which I found very interesting. I, I'm used to jamming my thumb in somebody's AC joint, and when when that causes a lot of pain, I'm, hey, they've got AC arthropathy of some kind. But apparently it's not always the case. It's not quite as specific as you'd like for it to be, unfortunately. The other thing is because stability or it's the lack of stability is a risk factor for the development of arthropathy, being able to test that is important. And the article describes a great test where you lie the patient's supine, you put their arm in about 90 degrees of flexion, and then you're going to put one hand over the AC joint and then use the other hand to provide a posteriorly or a force directed towards the floor to try to distract that joint a little bit. So that should show instability if there is instability in that joint. Sounds like a very comfortable test as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the patients will really enjoy that one (laughs) if they've got problems for sure. And then when you're looking at special provocative testing, of course, there's tons of tests out there. But the two that the article points out, um, which I think are really helpful, is the cross-arm test and the O'Brien active compression test. Now, the the cross-arm test is the most sensitive, per the study, provocative test out there. It's about 77% sensitive. And the way the cross-arm test works is you're just flexing the patient's arm. We've all probably done this before. You flex their arm to about 90 degrees, and then you just adduct or bring their arm all the way across their chest and try to compress that joint, that AC joint. Very sensitive, but not especially specific. However, the O'Brien active compression test is very specific, about 95% specific. Now, most of us know the O'Brien active compression test as a, a good test looking for labral injury, but it's very important assessing the AC joint as well. The way the O'Brien test works is you're flexing the patient's arm up to about 90 degrees. You add about 10 degrees of adduction or move their arm about 10 degrees towards the midline, and then you're going to have them with their thumbs up or externally rotated and apply downward force on their arm, and that's assessing the AC joint. And then thumbs down... So if you internally rotate and then provide a downward uh, compression or force, that's assessing the labrum. So remember, thumbs up for the AC joint, folks. That one will uh, keep you straight with the O'Brien uh, active compression test. That is super cheesy, but I'll remember it now. So all right. <laughs> what, yeah, what, else, what, what else you got? That's what I'm all about, cheesy. 
So when you're looking at imaging, the best test looking specifically at the AC joint is the Zanka view, where you've got about a 10 to 15 degree of cephalad tilt. When you're looking at advanced imaging with CT and MRI, we all know that you know CT is good for looking at the bones and the MRI is good for looking at soft tissue in the region. So when we want to look at treating these patients, certainly have an operative and a non-operative approach. Looking at the non-operative approach, which is of course what I do most of the time, activity modification, physiotherapy, medications of various sorts, and injection therapy are kind of the mainstays. It was interesting. I thought that the article pointed out immobilizing some of these patients that are really in the acute phase, really have acute pain. So even if they have pre-existing degenerative joint disease, if they develop an acute exacerbation of their problem, putting them in a sling for maybe up to a week at the most can really be helpful. That's that's interesting. I actually never really thought of that as a treatment option for at least a degenerative joint. You think about that sometimes for an acute injury or whatever, but something that flares up as an acute flare-up of a more chronic problem, uh, that's an interesting option. So I'll, I'll inject these sometimes, right? I, you know, I, I often do diagnostic injections, a little lidocaine, try to find out if that's where the pain's coming from, but also some therapeutic injection steroids. Uh, what Did they talk about injections at all, techniques or, or accuracy or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. And you made a good point there that injections can be both diagnostic and therapeutic, which so really can help in a lot of different ways, depending on what you're injecting, anesthetic, steroids, both, etc. But the one thing the article mentions is that these injections are deceptively challenging. I mean, in a lot of our patients, this joint sits very near the surface of the skin. And so it seems like it'd be pretty easy to find and hit a bullseye every time. But unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way. And they found, that the authors point out, that ultrasound really does increase the likelihood of getting that needle tip into the right space. So I know I certainly use ultrasound in my practice, and you do too, Cole, but I definitely think this is one place where ultrasound can really help you out and ensure that you're getting that injection in the right place and you're not going too deep through the AC joint and, and, and you know not off to the side or whatever. But another thing that they pointed out I thought was really interesting was that there's an MRI finding specifically caudal osteophytes and capsular hypertrophy that are predictive of a good response to an intraarticular injection. Hmm. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's interesting. So the article goes from there, really talks about operative management, open and arthroscopic techniques. I'm not going to go into those because I'm not a surgeon and I don't think I could do them justice. But one thing I did want to talk about was some of the post-op stuff. So when I see these patients, and I'm going to send them to a surgeon because they've exhausted all conservative management, I want to give them an idea of what they're getting themselves into. So the article talks about you know, post-op, most of these folks are going to have two to four weeks of immobilization, and it may be even longer if there was a, a significant dissection of the deltoid. And the biggest complication for these surgeries is persistent pain. They might get over-resected or under-resected, plus the usual array of post-op complications. So you know, surgery is certainly a good option, and it really helps a lot of people out. But the patients definitely need to be well-informed, and it'll help them make a better decision as to when they decide to go from that, that conservative management to taking the big step into the operative phase. That's great. Well, I, I'm assuming since you've gotten to surgery, I know that you're probably near the end of, of your discussion here. So uh, you, you put me on the spot, asked for a few key points. What, what are Scott's key points, aside from thumbs up for AC joint, uh, what, what are your key points, uh, your takeaway from this? 
Oh, that's definitely my favorite, the thumbs up. But, you know, I thought the Osochromial was a really interesting point. I haven't seen a ton of those, a couple of them, but I didn't realize that they can be symptomatic on their own and can really mislead you. And it can, especially as, a, you know, spending some time in the emergency room seeing patients, I definitely don't want to get confused and call that a fracture when it's actually actually not. So now I know what that is. Uh, certainly the physical exam thing that you mentioned and really just making sure as tempting as it is to do these injections without some sort of guidance, when you have access to the guidance, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, it really sounds like it makes a big difference in getting the injection in the right spot. Great article. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so we've gone over a couple of review articles, and that takes a little bit more time, so maybe we can be a little bit more brief and concise with the next two. But I was going to talk about a randomized controlled trial that was done in the, or at least published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in July. This was from Dr. Yim and his colleagues from the Chonam National University Hwasun Hospital, Jeonam, Korea. I apologize to everyone that speaks Korean out there for the butchering of that information, but it's the best I can do. So this is a study looking at whether we should consider uh, arthroscopic surgery for degenerative meniscal tears. Uh, and this is level one evidence. It's a randomized control trial. They took 102 patients with daily knee pain and mechanical symptoms. And the daily knee pain had to be on the medial side of the knee. And the mechanical symptoms had to affect their daily living. And then they had to have a degenerative horizontal tear of the posterior horn of the medial meniscus. Now, Scott, I know you're asking, why degenerative horizontal tears of the posterior horn of the medial meniscus? Why, right? Why? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was about to ask you. I'm what? so glad that you said that and I didn't have to. Well, it's because these are the most common. That's why. So they, they took this group. They found them. They randomized them to two groups, a non-operative group that was given NSAIDs. And then they went through a specific physical therapy program, strength, endurance, flexibility training, three times per week uh, for three weeks with a physical therapist, 60 months a session. And then they gave them an eight-week uh, home exercise therapy to go through. And then they had the surgical group. They, they took these guys in. They did a resection where the tear was at with limited debridement. Uh, and then they gave them NSAIDs and the same home physical therapy program for eight weeks. They looked at multiple pain scales. They looked at a visual analog score, the Lichome or Lichome knee score, pain and function scales, a satisfaction survey. They looked at radiographic appearance. They looked at all sorts of stuff. And in the end, they, they, their end points were two years and five years out. And they also did kind of, or excuse me, two years out, but they also did six months, uh, one year. They looked at three months and they saw no difference. I think that the Lysholm or Lysholm, I don't know how to properly say that, but those scores had a very small statistical difference at three months favoring the surgical group. But none of the other scales uh, at any of the other time points uh, from three months, six months, one year, or two years showed any difference in clinical outcomes. And same thing with the radiographic appearance, no change over the course of a couple of years. So their conclusion was there's no significant difference between arthroscopic meniscectomy and non-operative management uh, with strengthening exercises in terms of pain, function, or increased satisfaction. And this is great because it's kind of a little two-for-one for us. There was a similar study just last year in knee surgery, sports traumatology, uh, and arthroscopy, <laughs> which uh, looked at a similar type of thing where they had 96 patients with degenerative meniscal tears, and they randomized them to the two groups. The only difference in that study was they found that 13 patients from the non-operative group, so it was almost a third, uh, ended up failing that therapy and, and needed to go on to surgery to get relief of their pain. So uh, interestingly enough, eight of those 13 had 
uh, flap tears. So I'm not sure whether that's, you know, the reason for the difference because this other group was looking at specifically horizontal tears. So something different there, but the majority of their group, 70%, uh, there was no difference in the two groups. So they also came to the same conclusion, but said sometimes, uh, you know, we're going to, you might have to go to surgery there. So it sounds like you don't need surgery unless you need surgery. <laughs> yes. Yes. That sounds good. That's that's actually pretty good stuff. I mean, I'm being a, a little silly, but um, it's interesting. And, you know, meniscal tears are obviously very common, whether they're painful or not. How common do they uh, really happen? I mean, how many people are walking around out there with meniscal tears? And I assume you're referring, obviously, to patients with osteoarthritis. But in these OA patients, there's a couple of studies ranging from 63 to 91%, depending on whether they have pain or not, of meniscal tears. So, Two-thirds of these patients that are asymptomatic that have OA have meniscal tears. That's a big deal. It, it takes us back to that study from way back in 2002 with Dr. Mosley and his colleagues in the New, Jer New England Journal of Medicine. It was a big study where they did uh, arthroscopic surgery just for OA treatment, and they were trying to see whether it would work or not, and they, they blinded the patients. They made incisions in the, in the control group and made, it, made wow. them feel like they had arthroscopic surgery, and, and they saw no difference in any of the endpoints. So that was kind of the first study that told us, hey, as a treatment for arthritis, arthroscopy probably isn't a great option. But these two studies were looking more specifically at specific types of meniscal tears and whether uh, surgery would be beneficial to them. And in the end, probably not is the answer. So Cole, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically there's a lot of OA and meniscal tears coexisting out there. And most of them seem to do pretty well with conservative therapy. Some of those are going to break through and they potentially would benefit from surgery. Is that kind of the gist I should be getting out of this? Yes. And I'd say that that number benefiting from surgery is probably pretty small. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, let's finish up here with a great article, something very controversial and on the forefront of the field of sports medicine right now, and that's dental issues. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah, I'm excited. Where's this going? Where's this going? This is a great article, actually, recently, very recently published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine entitled Oral Health and Impact on Performance of Athletes Participating in the London 2012 Olympic Games, a cross-sectional study from Dr. Needleman, Dr. Ashley, and their colleagues who obviously worked during the 2012 Olympic Games. Hmm. So this is a really interesting and certainly something that's off the mainstream from what we would normally talk about in the field of sports medicine, but it had some great points that I wanted to bring forward. So basically, these guys worked in the polyclinic during the Olympic Games. They started looking at patients about 10 days prior uh, to 10 days prior to the start of the Games to about a day after closing ceremonies. They looked at about 302 athletes from 25 different sports, the most common sports being track and field, hockey, and boxing. A little over half the patients were male, and they were about 25 years of age or so, anywhere between 16 and 47. Now, without offending any of our, our sponsors or, or anybody out there listening, were there any country-predominant teams that we looked at for dental care? or um, They basically talked, without getting into great detail on it, uh, just because of the time, there was really... Athletes they were looking at from the United States, Africa, and Europe were the most common. Um, obviously, those are the fairly large sections of the world, and so that's pretty generic. But uh, So we won't go into specifics. But suffice it to say, there's a lot of dental disease out there. Interestingly, over 50% of these athletes had dental caries. 41% of those were irreversible, which means they went into the dentin. And an average, two teeth were affected. So over half the athletes had had de cavities or dental caries and it, you know an average of two teeth that's crazy and then 
greater than 75% had gingivitis. That, that just makes me think of those old uh, commercials where the gingivitis is attacking our, our athletes. So so greater than 75% of these athletes had gingivitis. Um, does this really matter to me, Scott? Is this significant? What's the, what's the average population rates of gingivitis? Well, in the United States, it looks like about 50% or so of the folks have gingivitis. Oh. And in the same age group as these Olympic athletes, about 28% have dental caries, at least in the United States. So the, the incidence of gingivitis in these athletes is higher, um, as is the rate of dental caries. And the article actually briefly discusses some sports drink issues or sports drinks to, mm, to blame yeah. for some of this. There's not a lot of great evidence to back that up at this point, but it certainly is not an unreasonable thought. That is very interesting. I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that, I, and I don't quite understand maybe why it's happening, but I guess maybe it doesn't matter to understand the why, but in terms of does it matter? Like, does, does it matter that our athletes have got a cavity? I mean, is, I guess that could affect performance in some ways. What Did it mention anything about the performance overall? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really what I found to be just incredible about this article. So about 40% were bothered by their oral health, which, you know, whatever, you don't like to have bad teeth, fair enough. Uh, 28% said it impacted their quality of life. Again, I'm sure these athletes have a lot of things that impact their quality of life. But most importantly, 18% reported an impact on training and performance. 18%. Hmm. I mean, the, the, the things that we do to optimize these athletes so yeah. that they can get that 0.01 seconds off their times. I mean, we do so many things that are so expensive and time intensive and all this research. But to almost 20% of these athletes are saying that their teeth prevent them from being all they can be. Um, and, and I think that's impressive. It's something that certainly goes unnoticed when we're worried about ankles and knees and flexibility and strength and power and all these other things. So, yeah. you know, really the bottom line, I, I think that we need to be more cognizant about dental hygiene in our athletes, especially for team positions. Um, you know, the article suggests that these guys should be getting annual dental care. So we should improve access to the dental care, but more importantly, we should just improve access to dental hygiene items and encourage it. Educate our athletes and make sure that they're you know, brushing and flossing and all those things that you're supposed to do. It definitely can make an impact, or at least it, it appears like it can make an impact in their training and performance. Absolutely. I, I would, I'll be honest, I was a little skeptical of that article at first, but that ended up being very, very interesting. And uh, I agree with you. We, we need to make sure we're screening for those things and taking care of our athletes. Yeah, it's cheap and easy, and I, I think it can go a long way for yeah. sure. So uh, it looks like we're getting ready to wrap it up. We've gone through our four articles, two reviews, uh, a couple of other interesting articles there. Um, obviously, we want to remind our listeners out there that if they want to get a hold of us, they can at uh, thesportsmedcast at gmail.com. Send us in your questions or comments. We're open to listening to whatever you have to say. And uh, what else? Do we have anything else to tell our listeners before we sign off, Scott? I think that's it. Just uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And definitely send us your comments and questions and anything you want to hear on future episodes. And until next time. Until next time.